When I grow up, I want to be a youth pastor. When I grow up, I want to be a therapist or a zoologist because I want to help people or animals that can't help themselves. I want to be a motivational speaker because I want to inspire others and I want to share my stories so people don't go through what I went through and they can get through it. I want to be an eye doctor when I grow up because I am visually impaired and I want to help other people who are visually impaired. When I grow up, I want to be either a vlogger or a worship leader. I want to be a college volleyball coach because uh, I've grown up playing volleyball and I grew up watching volleyball and I've just like fallen in love with it and I wanted to always coach a winning team. <laughs> when I grow up, I want to be a nurse because um, I feel like I'm being called to do that um, and pa like helping people is like my passion. Dream a little dream of... I think it goes without saying but I am the most humble man in the world. I'm even humble enough to admit it. If you don't believe me, I have a shirt. It says so too. I'm humble. I even have a badge, and I'm humble enough to wear it. Kanye West thinks I'm humble, and that man knows humility. You should feel privileged and honored to be in pre the presence of such a humble man. Good morning, Heritage, and all those watching online. It doesn't quite work that way, does it? This humility thing. There's sort of a general sense that if you have to admit it, you're probably not it. And yet we're called to be humble. What does it mean to live a life of humility in a world that really pushes at that? What does it mean to be humble when the world seems to value arrogance? How are we to live as we're called? We're in a series called Living the Dream, and I guess it was bound to happen eventually. I pulled up to the convenience store a couple weeks ago, and as I walked up, I noticed one of the employees was out there smoking a cigarette and picking up a bag of broken garbage on the sidewalk. And I said, hey, how you doing? She said, living the dream. <laughs> well, my response was, awesome, that's great. Only to realize later she may have been sarcastic. <laughs> Chalk went up for my obviousness. In the series, we're discussing the reality that we live in two worlds, that we're faced with two different sets of ideas often in life. There's this world that we're born into with its set of values, with its way of doing things, with its lens that it looks through. And then there is this kingdom of God that Jesus was calling us to that has its own worldview, it has its own beliefs, it has its own way of looking at things. And oftentimes, it is opposite the way the world thinks and so they confront each other, and we have to ask ourselves, what does it mean to live this life in the kingdom that Jesus was calling us to? Because Jesus talked about kingdom all the time. We see that even in Luke 4. He says, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. Which gets us to our first fill-in for the day in your worship guide, and that's this. The primary message of Jesus was kingdom. 
Now this may surprise you because there's many other words you might choose for that. But the primary message for Jesus was kingdom. And his invitation was for you to join him in his kingdom movement where he is king. And Jesus talked about it all the time. He mentioned the kingdom of God more than 90 times in just the first four books of the New Testament alone. His challenge to us was this in Matthew 6. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So we're to seek this kingdom in everything we do. And at the center of Jesus' message then was the idea that we are born into this world, but we are faced with two kingdom realities, two realms, two ways of looking at the world. And that this kingdom movement that he's calling us to would challenge much of what we have learned about the way things are supposed to be or how we live or what we do. It would confront those ideas. We've been talking about those for the past two weeks. Two weeks ago, we talked about the world's idea that you only live once. But the kingdom principles would say, we don't support that. That's not really true. The Bible would say you were created to live forever. That there is a real heaven and that there is a real hell and that we must make a decision on where we will spend our eternity. Last week we talked about the world's idea that it is survival of the fittest. Kind of this idea that it's a dog-eats-dog world out there. But you got to get there on your own. But the kingdom would say, nobody can achieve success on their own. In reality, God most often defines success completely different from us anyhow. And we need to be looking and asking, what does God think success is in this situation or in our lives? How do we define success through God's eyes? And so you can't be successful on your own. Today we're going to discuss an, another idea that the world says, and that's this, looking out for number one, that I'm at the center of my universe, that it's all about my needs, my wants, desires. In my world, it's me. What does the kingdom have to say about that, I wonder? Well, let's dive in and learn. In the 16th century, a scientist named Copernicus gave us some rather shocking news. You see, up to that point, we had believed that the earth was at the center of the universe, that the sun and the other planets revolved around the earth, even the stars. Copernicus had a different model and a different idea, and in his model, the sun was at the center of the solar system, and the planets revolved around the sun, but it was just a small part of something much bigger called the universe, that we are part of a much larger thing than we ever imagined. And this had a profound effect not only on science and how it moved forward, but on how we saw ourselves as people too. Because lo and behold, we're not actually at the center of the universe. Everything doesn't revolve around us. We are part of something much bigger and much larger than anything we ever imagined. It's kind of like the old joke, how many Jasons does it take to screw in a light bulb? And the answer, just one to hold it and let the world revolve around him. 
right? But the universe doesn't revolve around me any more than it revolves around you. And this is something we learn as we mature in life. When we're babies, everything is centered around us. We're the center of attention. Everything is funny and everything is cute. But don't we find out as we grow up that we're not always at the center of attention. Everything is not always about us. In fact, a lot of the things that were cute as children aren't so cute when we're adults anymore. Now they're just bad habits. We have to grow up. We have to realize that we share life with other people, that other people's needs, wants, and desires have to be observed, and we have to recognize them as well. We are called to be humble. And what that means is humility puts the needs of others above our own. It recognizes that other people have needs, wants, and desires as well. And it places those needs, wants, and desires above our own. Let me give you an example how that doesn't happen. Does anybody here like Sam's Club rotisserie chickens? Yeah, anybody? That's like manna from heaven. That is good stuff. I will sit there and wait for them to pull them out of the oven just to get one of those. It's good stuff. And it's the best deal in town. So imagine my surprise as I get one, and I can't wait. And by the way, what's the best part of rotisserie chicken? The, the skin, right? If you answered anything else, you are wrong. <laughs> and I'm humble enough to tell you. <laughs> so I buy one of these rotisserie chickens, and I take it home, and I place it on the counter. I can't wait to have some skin. I go out to the car to take out the rest of the stuff we bought, and when I come back in, here's what I find. There's only one person in the kitchen. That'd be my wife. And so I ask her, what happened? And with chicken breath, she answers, beats me. That is not putting Jason above yourself. I mean, but really, what, what does it mean to put the needs of others above our own? I want to tell you a story real quick. I, I had the privilege a few years ago to pastor a man named Dan. Dan was passionate about Jesus and faithfully served him in all that he did. He's one of those people that you could count on in the church to get things done. He was serving, involved. We just loved him. But one day he came to me and he was upset. And he says, Jason, one of the other pastors went down to the hospital and he met with a man. In their conversations, that man prayed to receive Jesus and then he died a few hours later. And I thought, well, that's cool. And I think it's important that we say, Dan's not a jerk. He's just struggling through something. And as he struggled through it, he said, you don't understand, this guy, I knew him. He had spent his entire life shaking his fist at God. He hurt everybody around him. He left a trail of debris and destruction behind him like nobody I know. He goes, and so he prays in these last hours. Is that how it works? If I was being honest with myself, I've asked that before too. And as we prayed and worked through it, the Lord took us to Matthew chapter 20 
And I'm going to encourage you, if you have your Bible, to turn to Matthew chapter 20 as well. It will be on the screen. It's in your worship guide as well. And we have a long story to read, so follow along as we hear a story from Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 20, starting in verse 1, he says this, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About nine in the morning he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. And he told them, you also go out and work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. And so they went. He went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. And about five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around. And he asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. And he said to them, you also go out and work in my vineyard. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired at five in the afternoon came in and each received a denarius. And so when those who were hired first expected to receive more, but each one of them also received a denarius. And when they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the ones who were hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? And then Jesus ends with this. So the last will be first and the first will be last. Now, from our Western perspective, this is a crazy story. This is nuts. This farmer, he goes out at 6 a.m. to hire workers and put them in the field for a denarius. Then he hires workers at 9, and then he hires workers at 12, at 3, and finally, in the last hour at 5 p.m., he hires workers to go work in his field. And then at 6 p.m., when the day is over, not only does he pay the workers hired at 5 p.m. First, he pays them the same amount as the workers he hired at 6 a.m. And as you can imagine, the 6 a.m. workers were a little bit upset by this. Because in our society, we have this idea that our culture teaches us to look out for number one. Built into our understanding is that if I work a little bit harder, if I do better than someone else, if I succeed more, I deserve to get paid more, I deserve to have more rewards, I am entitled to success, and that success comes with reward. But Jesus' response to that is the first is last, and the last is first. I love what... Theologian Michael Wilkins had to say about this. He said, what Jesus is saying is that serving him in the kingdom of heaven for the purpose of receiving rewards and gaining personal prominence is the least noble of motivations for a disciple. The upside-down statement about the first and the last declares that those who serve to receive a reward will be last. 
And those who serve in response to obedience will be first. What does it look like to put others first? How would that change how we look at the world? How would that change us as a church on how we engage the world and see others around us? I believe these kingdom ideas, this idea that we're to put others above ourselves, will confront at least three different areas in our lives I'd like to talk about today. The first one is this. Putting others first will challenge our economics. Just like in that story we read. It will challenge how we view money, how we spend it, who owns it, what we do with it. And if you want to know how a person views and handles money, the best way to find out is to just go play them in Monopoly. I know of no other game that can turn a sweet, gentle, loving grandma into a greedy land baron faster than Monopoly. Because that's what the game's all about. And some of you are looking at the person next to you and going, "Mm -hmm." mm-hmm. And if you're not, it's because it's you. You're the greedy land baron. The truth is, this farmer could have paid the workers one-twelfth of the day's wage. And in our society's mindset would have been fully justified and it would have been understood had he done that. But there was something this farmer understood that is important for us to understand. A denarius is not only the amount you pay for a day's work. Historians believe that a denarius was the cost to feed your family for a day. What the farmer understood is that these workers in his field did not have routine and regular work. If they wanted a job, they had to go in the marketplace in hopes that somebody would hire them. And if they didn't get hired, they didn't make any money. And if they didn't make any money, they didn't feed their family. This farmer understood, and what he decided the right thing to do was to place his ethics above his profit and say, I must first believe that every single person that works for me today can go home and feed their family. The most important thing that they can do in this situation is go home and make sure they're fed. He put people before profit. And we have to do the same. It's not always black and white and cut and dry. We have to believe that we exist to help others and put our ethics before our finances. This kingdom mindset will challenge how we see economics and how we spend money. I want to show you an example from a couple that's a part of our heritage family and how taking on this kingdom mindset has changed how they see the world as well too. Watch this with me. Hey, we're talking a little bit about how when we have this kingdom mindset, it changes all areas of our life, even how we see money. Now, you have an exciting story you've told me about, but most people haven't heard about it. Tell me what's going on. Well, in 2011, our family moved to China. And one of the cool things I was able to do while I was there is volunteer at a local foster home. So every Friday, I got the privilege to go in and help take care of some really great kids. 
At the same time, um, I began interested in finding something to take home from our time there, some memento from overseas, and I was introduced to two local artisans, and they run their own businesses. One employs about 20 individuals, and one employs about nine, and they hand make furniture, custom pieces, um, mostly out of wood, and this is not a factory-run operation. These guys learn this trade, and they're taught this trade so that they can earn an income for their families. Awesome. And coming back from there, um, after I had purchased a lot of their pieces, I, <laughs> we returned to the United States, and it felt like, okay, we're back here, so what can we do now? While I was there, I could help. There was something I could feel like I was being a part of, and here it felt I knew of the need, I knew it was happening over there, but mm. what was God calling me to do here? So. After some time, we thought about it and talked about what that could look like for our family. And I thought about how can I combine what I saw? How can I take these relationships I had with these artisans, buy from them at a fair price what they're making, come back over here, maybe sell that for a higher price, and then turn around and give the money back to a nonprofit run by some friends of ours that still live in Beijing who work on a project basis to care for orphan children in the country. Oh, that's incredible. Dan, how's that? changed your life? In, in many ways, Jason, I think it's been a, uh, a great thing for our family. It's been a great thing for our marriage. It's allowed us to really feel a calling from the Lord and then pursue it even when we don't know what the next step is. And so we've, we've spent over a year kind of brainstorming and dreaming about what this is going to look like and, and tried different avenues. We looked at being a 501c3. That didn't work. So you know, we, we got advice and counsel from folks and, and ended up setting up an LLC to create this. And, and as we got into it, um, we needed some help on the financial side to get things started. And so um, we had a major faith-stretching opportunity with trying to fundraise money to do this. And so we, we did uh, use the term crowdsourcing is what people call it today, where we asked family and friends to come alongside and help us do this. And um, what was really interesting was watching the Lord provide, not necessarily in the way we thought, going into it, but it, his provision was far bigger than what we could have expected in terms of um, the way that the money came in, when it came in, how it came in. Um, and then, uh, you know, for us personally, putting a, a substantial amount of money into the business as well to be a part of this, it was, it was a great experience for us. And we've really felt that um, the Lord has stretched us along the way and, and helped us create what we think is going to be a a sustainable business to continue to pour money back into orphans' lives in China. And what kind of profit are you going to make on this? Any? Um, from our family's perspective, no. I mean, our, our, our goal is 100% of the proceeds go back. So Carrie um, is the sole proprietor of the, of the business, and she plans to take uh, no paycheck from this whatsoever. We'll cover the expenses for her to go to China and, and purchase the, the inventory and those sorts of things, a few operating expenses, but we're trying to keep our costs down so that there's as much profit as possible um, to be given back. So we, we do plan to give away 100% of it. That was our commitment to the folks who helped contribute and get things started was that 100% of the proceeds will be going back into um, orphan children in China. So if I've got this right, you've put tens of thousands of dollars of your own money into this. It will make no profit for you whatsoever. You're not taking a salary of any sort in this. Everything that comes in for this goes to the orphans. 
That's right. And one of the cool things is that these friends of ours who run this nonprofit, who are we who we're teaming up with, they also do not accept any administrative fees for their work. And so, literally, 100% of what we're able to turn, what we're able to give away, will go directly back to the children who really need it. And that's what it comes down to. Um, when you see the difference that even $100 makes in the life of an orphan child, it's really hard to say, no, I need that money more than they do. They need it more, so it's a no-brainer. Wow. I think it's important to note, that's not a heritage missions opportunity. This is a couple who decided on their own to make a difference in the lives of people in the world. Because this kingdom mindset of seeing things the way Jesus sees them took hold of their lives. And I have to tell you, I've owned a business before and I've taken entrepreneurial management classes in school. That is not how you run a business. You do not pour tens of thousands of dollars of your own money in it, not take a salary and give away all of your profit. Nothing about our Western society understanding of how to run a business makes any sense in that story. And yet when Jesus took hold of their lives, they found out that they were looking at the world through a different lens. The next thing that it's going to challenge and confront in your life is this. It will realign how you see others, this kingdom mindset. You will see people differently. The CEO of one of the largest companies in America told a story of how he was getting his master's degree and in his last final, in his last leadership class, he went in and there was only one question on the test. It said this, remember the janitorial worker who set up the lecture hall and cleaned up after class? What was her name? What was her name? Remember the people who have prepared these rooms, these sanctuaries for us to do worship this weekend. What was their name? The army of volunteers that take out the garbage and vacuum the floors and get our coffee ready. For many of you, the army of volunteers out there who are watching our children right now, what's their name? I love this verse from Philippians 2, 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility. Value others above yourself. How do you view others? Do you see them as above yourself? Or are they simply a pawn in your chess game of life? Do you see them as objects to use to get your will done? I wrote this in my journal the other day. I'm having trouble memorizing it, so I'm just going to read it. We often say that we need to be better listeners. And if we're better leaders, in order to connect with those we are in relationship with, and of course, that's true. But I want to push at this a little further. Because you can listen, you can process, and even hear what someone is saying, and yet feel nothing. You can have sympathy without empathy. And if we are truly to put others above ourselves, if they are to be first and us last, then we must go beyond listening. We have to feel.
feeling and putting others first means that we have to step into their story to see the world as they see it if we're to understand how to help. The first must be last and the last must be first. The third thing that this kingdom mindset will confront is it will confront our politics. It will confront our politics. And I, I realize the very mention of that is making most of us squirm in our seats, especially as we're heading towards a major election year, and I'm already tired of hearing about it. But this kingdom mindset will attack all areas and confront all areas and challenge all areas of our lives, including our politics. I like this verse from Philippians 3.20. It says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Where is your citizenship? Heaven. If I asked most people in the room, where are you a citizen? The answer I would get is America. And while that's true, it is at best your secondary Citizenship, your primary citizenship as a Christ follower is in heaven to the kingdom of God where Jesus is your king. That is the message of Jesus. The kingdom of God, he is inviting you to be a part of it through death and through resurrection in the kingdom. We die to our old selves. We are reborn into the kingdom as ambassadors, citizens, and representatives of the kingdom of God where Jesus Christ is king. And so if you ask me, Jason, are you a Republican? Are you a Democrat? What are you? I will answer none of the above. My primary citizenship is to the kingdom of God in which I'm an ambassador. The Bible says that we're just passing through, that heaven is our home and Jesus is our king. And so when I have to vote and when I look through the lens of how to pick out what is best and how to live, I only look through the lens of the Bible and through the word of God because Jesus Christ is my king, not the politicians. It is God, Bible, Constitution, not other way around. We must first ask ourselves, what would Jesus do or say in this situation? How would he have me to vote or to act? It will confront our politics. Benjamin Zander is a world-famous conductor He's been doing it more than 40 years, and he's on a mission to help the world understand the value of classical music. In fact, he would say everybody loves classical music, they just don't know it yet. And he's passionate to get that message out. My son showed me a TED talk recently where he was the guest speaker. And in this TED Talk, he played this amazing piece from Chopin on the piano. It was moving. It drew you in. And when he was done, most of the audience was crying. They were so moved. And then he had this to say. Oh, but I tell you what happened to me. I was in Ireland during the Troubles 10 years ago, and I was working with some Catholic and Protestant kids uh, on conflict resolution, and I did this with them. A risky thing to do because they were street kids and one of them came to me the next morning 
And he said, you know, I've never listened to classical music in my life, but when you played that shopping piece, <laughs> he said, my brother was shot last year and I didn't cry for him. But last night when you played that piece, he was the one I was thinking about. And I felt the tears streaming down my face and you know it felt really good to cry for my brother. So I made up my mind at that moment that classical music is for everybody. Everybody. Now, how would you walk? Because you know my profession, the music profession doesn't see it that way. They say 3% of the population likes classical music. If only we could move it to 4%, our problems would be over. I say, how would you walk? How would you talk? How would you be if you thought 3% of the population likes classical music? If only we could move it to 4%. How would you walk? How would you talk? How would you be if you thought everybody loves classical music? They just haven't found out about it yet. <laughs> See, these are totally different worlds. Now, I had an amazing experience. I was 45 years old. I'd been conducting for 20 years, and I suddenly had a realization. The conductor of an orchestra doesn't make a sound. My picture appears on the front of the CD. <laughs> but the conductor doesn't make a sound. He depends for his power on his ability to make other people powerful. And that changed everything for me. It was totally life-changing. People in my orchestra came up to me and said, Ben, what happened? That's what happened. I realized my job was to awaken possibility in other people to awaken the possibility in other people. What if we were just as passionate as he is about classical music, we were just as passionate about getting the word of Jesus Christ out? What if we truly believed as a people and as a church, really down deep in our hearts, that everybody needs to know Jesus Christ, they just don't know it yet? What if instead of having the idea, listen, if I could just lead one person to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ in the coming year, or if I could just help disciple one person, what if instead our posture was, I think everyone around me needs to know Jesus Christ because he is the hope and healing for the world. What could we accomplish then? What if putting others first means that we exist to help awaken the possibilities in others? to awaken to the possibility that there really is a God, that he loves them, that he sent his son to die for them so that they can have forgiveness of sins, that they can be set free from their old lives and reconnected to God, that they can live with hope and healing in their lives. What if we saw that everyone around us needs to hear this message? How would that change how we are as a people? How would that change how we operate as a church? What would it mean for us to put others first and us last? I think it starts by humbly putting others' needs above our own and allowing this kingdom mindset to change how we view our finances, how we see others, and how we engage politics around us. It means serving others and expecting nothing, nothing in return. It's selfless. The first is last, and the last is first. I wonder, I really wonder what we could not accomplish if we believed that with all our heart. 
Just as Paul said in Philippians 2, 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility. Value others above yourself. What's that going to mean for you this week to value others more than yourself? For the first to be last and the last to be first. That's my challenge to you and to this church. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. Help us more and more to be these kingdom people that you're calling us to be, to see the world as you see it, to step into people's lives, to not simply listen and hear, but to feel. Help us to know you more and more. Thank you for the privilege it is to serve others. May we do so expecting nothing in return. May all glory be your glory, God. And may we, in the coming week, be revealed to us how we can put others first and us be last in all that we do. Truly believing and holding on to this idea, everybody needs Jesus. They just don't know it yet. May we shine our light in your name. Amen.